are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we are picking up with our study of step 26 on discernment. And just as a reminder, John sees this as a fruit of humility, that once we have removed the impediment of pride and have also, uh, through humility, overcome the other passions, uh, then we develop a capacity to see the, the truth of the things of God, the things of the kingdom, as well as the truth about ourselves and even about others, too. And uh, and so this is a very important of virtue. And uh, from this point on, he'll be discussing how it impacts our life in many different ways that I think everybody will find very interesting. And so, again, we're picking up with number 70 on page 199. Once long ago, when I was still young, I came to a town or village, and while sitting at table, I was attacked by thoughts of gluttony and vainglory, both at once. Fearing the offspring of gluttony, I decided that it was better to yield to vainglory, for I knew that in the young, the demon of gluttony often conquers the demon of vainglory. And this is not surprising. In people of the world, the root of all evils is love of money, but in monks, it is gluttony. So, you know, he sees himself being attacked by two different temptations. And knowing that gluttony leads then to lust, that and that this would be a particular challenge for the monk, you know, falling into overeating, uh, whereas love of money wouldn't be as much of an issue, certainly that he has to make a choice there of allowing uh, his discipline to be seen by others and allowing for the possibility of falling into vainglory, that others would admire him uh, for the depth of his discipline and holding fast to it. And so it's an interesting way of thinking about things that we are often confronted with circumstances and maybe most of us don't have this level of introspection that John Climacus has, where we would see, you know, two temptations hitting us at one time and even having to make this kind of choice. But nonetheless, I think it's helpful to see what he's saying here, that we have to be able to evaluate you know, the, the enemy or the passion that is dominant for us. 
or that could do the greatest damage. And where our where the battle uh, line is for us at the moment. And uh, and so if we struggle with lust or if we struggle with gluttony in particular, we we would want to begin there and make sure that we are waging the battle as fiercely as we can. That uh, something like vainglory, which is more of a spiritual passion, having less to do with the, the bodily appetites, uh, you know, are fighting that might be in vain in, in any case. Uh, so best to start with something which is clear, more obvious for us, or at least has a clear, I think, remedy for us. Uh, let's see here. Often divine providence uh, leaves certain passions in spiritual people so that by unsparingly condemning themselves for those trifling defects, they may obtain that wealth of humility which none can steal. And so often we are left with the remnants even of a passion uh, that humble, humbles us, the vestiges of things that perhaps we've struggled with greatly in our youth, but still remain with us in order to remind us uh, to be ever vigilant and, and watchful. And, uh, and if we uh, were completely free of them, we might fall again into pride and become less vigilant and so find ourselves uh, experiencing a greater fall uh, in, in the spiritual life. It is impossible for those who have not first lived in obedience to obtain humility. For everyone who has learned an art on his own fancies himself. A uh, wonderful way of expressing this, uh, that John, as we've talked about, viewed the Cenobitic life, the common life, as being the training ground. Uh, for the monastic life as a whole, that it is an unusual thing for a person to enter into the life of great solitude, to live as an anchorite. And one would only do so after many years of training under a spiritual elder, especially in obedience and humility, and, uh, and after following the guidance of one's spiritual elder. And the image here is an interesting one, that someone who has picked up an art on their own is going to attribute it to himself. You know, I'm just, I just happen to be incredibly talented and skilled and uh, so can do this. And so a person might fancy themselves as being, you know, uh, my, I'm, I have a strong constitution and I sort of like being alone. And so perhaps I could enter into the, uh, life of great solitude and uh and there's a kind of an illusion there that uh the evil one as we've said is relentless and to a person who lacks humility and lacks obedience is not going to be able to be uh, attentive not to have the discernment to see temp temptations as they come and not be able to hear what God is saying to them, not be obedient, ab adre, remember, uh, and not be able to hear what is important and to discern whether it's from God or from the evil one. 
And so a person who thinks that they are uh, called to that simply because they're attracted to certain aspects uh, often will put themselves in danger. So one has to learn one's ABCs before moving on to more difficult and challenging things. The fathers state that the active life consists of two virtues of the most general kind, fasting and obedience. And rightly, for the first destroys sensuality and the other reinforces this destruction with humility. That is why mourning also has a double power for it destroys sin and produces humility. So it might be surprising that John puts these two out in particular, uh, and he uses the active life as referring to the ascetic life. And so these two he sees as being essential. Fasting, that we begin with the, the first of the passions, gluttony, uh, the first of the bodily appetites, and to neglect this then is to uh, then stall oneself in the spiritual life, that you open yourself up to this basic passion if you haven't really done battle with this appetite. And so one has to be practiced and it has to be a regular part of the spiritual life. And one has to have come to love the, the ascetic practice in, in order that it becomes uh, something that is formative, that is tied in one's mind and heart to, to the depth of prayer and the desire, the hunger for God. Um, uh, what we hear in the scriptures, uh, uh, Christ referring to himself as the bread of life and that you know after he's taken away, then they will fast, that there's a unique fasting for us as Christians that's tied to the desire for Christ. And so uh, Climacus, like many of the others, would say fasting is essential uh, because it uh, restrains desire where it's often disordered and it allows it to grow uh, where it needs to be directed in the, the desire for God. And then obedience, this capacity to set aside self-will and uh, and to be able to follow the guidance of another. And so the first fasting destroys, as he said, sensuality, that if we're able to control one bodily appetite and humble the mind and body through it, then the struggle with lust for, is minimized. And, uh, and with obedience, then humility is is deepened uh, that we set aside again our own will and our own private judgment to this he adds mourning uh, so it has a double power he says that this remembrance uh, of our sin but also deep compunction uh, and deep sorrow for it uh, drives out against again the sensuality but also reveals to us our true poverty our weakness and so this gift can do what obedience and fasting uh, do together. This is, you know, 73, I think, is a very important thing uh, in terms of 
discernment, but also spiritual counsel in general. Uh, I think because we've become unmoored often from the spiritual tradition, uh, many modern works of spirituality or modern talks on, on the spiritual life typically might not say, okay, in the active life, in the ascetic life, fasting and obedience is where you begin. Uh, not, neither of those are probably going to be two attractive topics uh, for a retreat or a, a day of recollection. And so, you know, often the focus is on prayer, which is a good thing, or contemplation, other aspects of, of the spiritual life or particular devotions. But uh, I think this encourages a kind of leapfrogging over really what is uh, truly part of the active life. If you remember, we, we've turned the active life into works of charity. Uh, but this isn't how the fathers made a distinctive distinction. The active life was the ascetic life where, that, where one's heart is purified so that one might be able to receive the gift of contemplation, that God might reveal himself more fully, that it was assumed that in embracing the gospel, being obedient to the gospel, that one would love others and serve the poor. And so we've moved away from a, a, this clear understanding of the active life, which is really forming the heart. And, uh, and so our, all of our spiritual talks should begin with these kinds of, of realities. And I, I think it's hard because you see in the fathers, they all start by talking first about the passions and dealing with them, how they manifest themselves, the remedies for them. And then they move on to the virtues. And then finally, you know, in the last three steps of John, we'll get to love and prayer and contemplation after we've spent 26 steps looking at the vices and the virtues and how to form them. And uh, I think there's a kind of lazy thinking that has permeated also our study and discussion of the spiritual life, where we will want to uh, focus upon things or encourage something like contemplation, uh, but we at times do so prematurely. Uh, over the years, I've heard so many people talk about the dark night of the soul or want to discuss the dark night of the soul. And, you know, John of the Cross was writing for contemplative nuns and for those who had engaged in the ascetic life and led a really rigorous life and virtuous life. And, and so he's talking about these, you know, higher stages of prayer and what begins to emerge. And, you know, I think often when we are talking about the dark night of the soul in modern times, it's more like, how do I deal with having depressive feelings, you know, or a day where I'm down in, in the dumps, or I don't feel like engaging in the spiritual life, that we'll equate the two. And I'm not trying to be flippant here, but I think there, it's when we popularize spirituality, uh, I think there's always that, that danger of you know wanting to jump over the things that are perhaps more difficult but yet most essential uh, a couple of comments here uh let's see 
how does one practice the life of obedience as a lay person? Well, I think first and foremost, by embracing the reality of our baptism and our identity as Christian men and women, uh, living the gospel, embracing a prayer role, uh, embracing the sacramental life, going to confession regularly, uh, being obedient to the realities of our particular vocation, married men and, and women, uh, you know, that they have to be obedient to that particular call. You know, to become one means setting aside, uh, in large part, one's ego and egoism in order that one might love uh, without condition and to give oneself fully to to the other and uh and so in large part that obedience means being faithful uh to the disciplines that allow that to emerge within that relationship and so husband and wives should be the greatest of prayers together and individually they should protect that for each other uh fostering tenderness gentleness respect for the other there are all these ways that I think, you know, one has to set aside uh, one's own desire for ease uh, or the, the, the freedom of the, the single life in order to live for the other. And when children come along, that becomes even more pronounced that your life is not your own. From that point on, you're responsible for the care of somebody who is completely helpless. So there's no more eight hour nights of sleep. You're lucky if you get two hours at a shot. And uh, so there's a multitude of ways to 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 be obedient, uh, I think. And also in our day to day life and you know, encounter with others in our work that if you remember in the monastery, that they would call what the duties that they were given their obediences. They were given their obedience for the day. And so one would take up one's work uh, and give an honest day's labor. And But not only that, but to engage in it in a distinctively Christian fashion uh, where we work with, you know, with honesty, with humility, that we work hard, we give an honest day's labor uh, for for our pay. And so I think there's a multitude of ways that we can be uh, obedient on a day-to-day -day basis, no matter what our particular vocation might be. Let's see, Isaac the Syrian is great on not putting the cart of contemplation before the horse of purification, right? And most of the fathers, for most of the fathers, that is true. Uh, there's a consistency, especially in the Eastern fathers, to make that clear. It's true in Cassian and the conferences, and uh, it permeates their writings. Uh, Marine writes, the monks of Mount Athos are very uh, healthy. A doctor did a study. Uh, are we talking about the, the asceticism or you know, not pampering the body kind of thing? No, what he did is he's from Pennsylvania. He did a study on what they ate because they fast all the time. They ate mm. beans. They don't eat a lot of meat. They mm. work very hard over there. And then um, and he found that none of them were on medication. 
they yeah. were all pretty healthy. Not would say healthy, but there was not illness. Yeah, so I wrote a book. I on heard they diet. sneak in. I, they sneak in jelly donuts on that boat, or, or some wine or something. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute! Wait a minute! <laughs> Uh, no, it's true. And I think the same is true about the Desert Fathers. You know, they, they ate sparingly, but a lot of them lived well over 100 years old. And, uh, and the rigors of this spiritual life and lack of sleep, you know, again, I think, you know, Art asked a question before the group about, you know, how the body was treated. And I can't remember how you, you put it. Uh, how, Art, do you remember how? Sorry, yes, Father, it was about the wasting away of the body. And the way, why the, was that a virtue? Right. The wasting that we don't pamper the body. And sometimes in our day and age, we uh, you know, are almost hypochondriacs in that regard. Anytime we have an ache or a pain or we're thirsty or feel a little bit of a, you know, our stomach growl, we're running for the kitchen and everybody's carrying around a two-liter bottle of water you know, and, you know, taking multiple vitamins every day, which most of it goes into the toilet, is along with the water, the two gallons of water that you're drinking every day, too. And so it becomes sort of rid ridiculous. And, uh, and so, you know, being willing not to pamper the body, but to push oneself to stretch oneself, uh, in order that one becomes directed uh in every way toward god and in regards to the appetites desires as well as one's thoughts and uh again the the physical aspect is just the beginning the first step of that and learning how to deal with our own bodily appetites and uh if if we aren't doing that it's hard to make much progress number 74 the, to the pious, it is natural to give to everyone who asks, and to the more pious, to give even to him who does not ask, but not to demand a thing back from the person who took it, especially when they have the chance, is characteristic perhaps only of the dispassionate. So, you know, one who has let go of their attachment to worldly things is not going to be overly anxious about clinging to what they've loaned or given to another or getting it back, that they are able to, uh, to give those things to another and then let go of their hold of it altogether. Uh, and this reveals a kind, of more, a kind of a more perfect freedom that one's identity does not depend upon one's possessions. And so if somebody, even when they have a chance, doesn't give something back and we're able to let go of our grip that's in our mind, our grip of it in terms of, of wanting that back and thinking about it, then there's true freedom there. Most often we're like a monkey who's reaching into a barrel trying to pull a banana out and yanking and yanking, you know, and can't get his hand out because he won't let go of the stupid banana. And uh, that's how we are with uh, material goods. And so, uh, you know, developing this kind of freedom, uh, it's hard in our day because I, th I think we are used to the fact of people taking advantage 
or scamming and not wanting to be caught up in that or the people on the street asking because they are alcoholics or drug addicts and so you know not wanting to make eye contact and not wanting to to give freely in those circumstances and i understand that and you know certainly those things are reasonable and often uh, we're required to go the extra mile to offer the kind of help to a person that they truly need more than just a couple bucks. But even when it comes to giving somebody a couple bucks, you know, that I, one priest said, you know, it's better to err on the side of charity. You know, what does a couple bucks mean to us? And if the person goes and gets a bottle of alcohol or something because of it, then so be it. But not to harden our hearts to the other over something uh, insignificant. Uh, but, you know, I think that's the minimum of Christianity. I think we are to be fully engaged and our sympathy for others, our empathy with their sorrows, their struggles, whatever they might be, is to be perfected by the grace of God. So that when we see those things, that we do not remain unmoved, but that we are drawn in to engage in whatever way that we can. And we often like to live in, you know, this kind of sweet isolation where nobody breaks into the frame of our life and the schedule of our life or the order of it, because that provides us with a kind of security and allows us to remain in our comfort zone and doing the things that we feel well suited to do or dealing with people that we want to deal with and not those that are aggravating or, uh, or really, uh, suffering from things that would be disruptive to our day. You know, it's hard, you know, the, I've, where, where I was once before, we had a bunch of young priests, and I was still a pretty, fairly young priest, but I had, you know, more experience, and somebody had just gotten out of Western Psychiatric Institute and was sitting in the front hall and wanted to speak to a priest and it was clear by the way that they were dressed and among other things that you know that there was more going on there and immediately they said father david could you go out there and talk to this this person and uh, uh because it's hard you know to sit down with another not with the thought of having to fix but not to lose sight of the personhood and to offer time to someone that we might not be able to do a lot for other than to show them, you know, common kindness and to, to respect their dignity or maybe to be able to direct them to places where they can get the help that they need. And, uh, you know, it's sometimes our Christian communities and parishes and can be you know, we can build pretty high walls around ourselves. Uh, Anthony writes, our hypochondria is driven by our social messaging. Our avarice is driven by our capitalist pr propositions, presuppositions. 
uh, of wealth, us wealth, usury, overemphasis on private property. Right, there are a lot, there are so many different things that I think control and dictate our responses. And this is, I think, where discernment comes in, where we're able to see what God is asking of us or the need of, of the other. And we were even talking about this on uh, Monday in the Evergatinas, that even something like health insurance, you know, that that reality in our day, it limits our, our freedom in some fashion, because we think, oh my gosh, you know, if I take a certain path and I'm, I'm without uh, health insurance, I'm in big trouble. You know, you know, I'm not going to be able to see a doctor or get my medications or whatever it might be. And so there are a whole host of things that shape our existence and the choices that we make. And there are some of those things that are important or that we might not be able to change. But there are a lot of things I think that we need to consider about how, how we live our life and use our time and ask ourselves, you know, are we really reflecting the love of Christ and manifesting the love of Christ to the world? Or is it something that is much less and that is behind a filter or a wall that a person has to get through? Sometimes that wall is simply the secretary of the parish, <laughs> the screener, you know, of anybody who comes into the, the building. And that was one of the first things that Pope Francis talked about. You know, we've got to get rid of that eighth sacrament, which is the, the parish secretary who determines who gets to see the priest and, you know, who has access, you know, and uh, uh, because it can be a form of, of avoidance. Okay, let's move on. Uh, number 75. In every passion and also in the virtues, let us critically examine ourselves. Where are we? At the beginning or in the middle or at the end? So to ask ourselves, to examine ourselves honestly. Uh, a number of times we've talked about Francis's little mantra, who are you, God? Who am I? And to add to this, you know, where am I? You know, where is my heart? Uh, and what's the proof of that? You know, do I love God uh, by the way that I live my life and use my time and the way I engage others? 76. All the attacks which we suffer from the demons come from these three causes, from sensuality or from pride or from the envy of the demons. The last are blessed, the middle are very pitiful, but the first are failures to the end. So interesting, isn't it? So a person who's never really dealt with sensuality, who's never engaged in the ascetic life, they are going to be pulled around and yanked around uh, till the end of their life that they you know, have never engaged in the spiritual battle. The ones in the middle are, are pitiful uh, because they are still laboring under the illusion 
that they are capable of doing things outside of the grace of God and by their own strength. And uh, and the last or the first uh, or the last are blessed where the demons envy them. They're attacked out of this malicious envy of their virtue. And so the demons are constantly at them to undermine them. So all are being warred against, you know, that we're all engaged in the spiritual battle. And this sort of shows us, you know, how it is that we would answer that question, where are we? And so we're, we're, what's our battlefield is one of the ways that we would address that, that question. Where, where are we fighting daily? Number 77. I'm sorry, Suzanne had a question to comment here. Uh, I quit a part-time job because of the filthy language and sick behavior of my fellow employees. I did it to protect my soul. Yeah, you know, I think that's, you know, I, I hear that so often and how difficult it, it is to be in a workplace that there is no kind of decorum that guides and directs the way that people engage each other, the language that is used, the, the humor that makes it uh, a place that is very difficult uh, to live the spiritual life and uh, or to engage one's fellow employees. And uh, so, you know, sometimes we have to cut certain things out of our, our life that make it impossible for us. And that might mean sacrifice uh sometimes small uh or sometimes big again always remember the saying if your eye causes you sin pluck it out if your hand causes you sin cut it off that christ is telling us not only not to pamper the body but he's saying that there are going to be times that we have to cut certain things out of our life that we know can be uh, a cause of sin or an opportunity for sin and it might be hard it might we might feel the sting of it or the loss of it, uh, but our love for God and our love for virtue is such that we are are willing to make that sacrifice, and uh, that you know this requires a kind of clarity of thought, but also courage uh, to to take that path, uh, the courage of of, mar of the martyrs, uh, Saint Paisius the Athenite says, you know, that those in our day who protect their purity are going to be considered like the martyrs of old. And so, you know, what, what these individuals have to sacrifice in order to maintain purity of heart in our day with its hyper, you know, sensuality and, you know, all the things going on in the culture and uh, that they're going to have to step away from so much and immerse themselves in prayer and the ascetic life to pr to protect what is precious, that purity of heart, that it's going to be akin to the cost that the martyrs were willing to make in sacrificing their own life. Again, that would probably be very hard for message to put out there first for people to hear uh 
So if you want to maintain purity, be prepared for martyrdom in, in our day. But at least it's honest. It, you know, it, it sort of calls, uh, it's the clarion call for those who are engaged in the spiritual battle. And it's being honest. It's like, okay, uh, steal your heart because this is the battle that we are about to engage in. And it's going to cost us a great deal. Uh, the cost is worth it. You know, we receive everything, but we uh, cannot expect that we are going to be able to make our way through this life and be fully integrated with the culture around us. Because it's opposed to, to this purity. Number 77. There is a certain feeling, or rather habit, called endurance of hardship. He who possesses it will never be cowardly, nor avoid labor. Upheld by this glorious virtue, the souls of the martyrs easily despised their tortures. So, hope, uh, hope in the promises of Christ allows us then to form and fashion this habit of endurance of hardship, that we are willing to endure all for the sake of what Christ has promised us and the life that he's promised us. And, uh, and so, you know, a certain level of courage is needed for the Christian. Uh, this martyrdom that we are called to uh, on a daily basis, a dying to self and sin in order to, to live for Christ. And I think we do a, a grave injustice uh, in our preaching of the gospel. Uh, was it Erasmo Maricacus put it this way, that uh, evangelist of every stripe that is, you know, those who ordained to preach and the, the simple Christian, uh, you know, are all of us are called to, to bear witness to the gospel, not just in thought, in our words, but in the way that we live our life. And the way that we live our life should be reflective of the life of Christ, the poverty that he embraced. And that the leaders of the church, he says, should be, in, in some sense, the, the most destitute of the Christian community. And more so, he says, than the vagrant, vagrant who's ringing the rectory doorbell. And when I read that, it pierced me to the heart because I thought, that is an incredible thought. Because we are to to bear witness to our love for the kingdom, where our treasure is found. And uh, if uh, we have nothing in common with the the vagrant and the beggar who rings our doorbell, and uh, and if we're only giving out of our surplus, uh, that it's not reflective of the love of the kingdom or the old woman who throws in her two copper coins 
in the temple. You know, she gives everything. And, uh, and so we've domesticated the gospel. We've turned evangelization into something that is more akin to worldly success. And this is why it's failing. Because we want to be seen as successful in the eyes of the world. Where if our evangelization was fruitful, we would probably look like fools, weirdos, and idiots to most of the world. Because we would not be seeking everything that everyone in the world seeks. I'm reminded, Jeff writes, of a quote from a Benedictine book, Personal Prayer. Our hope is at its greatest when we have absolutely no other means to provide for ourselves than to beg God for help. When our hope is rooted deeply in our full understanding of our poverty, it's at its strongest, fullest. Right, it's when we cling to Christ. And again, when we have no illusions uh, about our, ourselves, our own strength, or what we can accomplish, abstracted from him. And we are least likely to experience that delusion when we find ourselves in great want, you know, when the, we've been laid low in one fashion or another. Uh, David Sudersky writes, I have found hardship to be helpful in gaining detachment from many things and faults. The saint used to say gold is purified in the crucible of life. That's right. It's, you know, life itself, it's humiliations, it's uh, sorrows. All of these things humble us uh, in such a way then that we look, have to look toward God to the one alone who can give us strength and the one alone who can be our consolation. And uh, we often lament these things. And in some of our readings in uh, the Africatinos, you know, especially when we've talked about self-abasement or the insults that come from others, is seeing others as our advocates, those who, who do these things to us as our advocates uh, before God, and so uh, that because they are purifying us of our sin or knocking off the rough edges for us, and often the, the hardships that we experience in this life does do the same. We hate feeling that we're at loose ends and we don't have control of things, and. Uh, So, you know, we're constantly, you know, grasping for, for that. And it's hard for us to remain and wait for the Lord and for him to reveal to us the path forward that he desires for us. Let's see here. Lee Graham writes, what does recklessly despise their torture? Uh, despise it in the sense of, you know, not giving it power over them, that the threat of torture is not something that they give weight, such a weight that it would dissuade them from being faithful to the gospel. 
there's a similar phrase in the scripture, despising, you know, of Christ despising its shame of the cross. Uh, and I think we are meant to read that in the same way. The cross is embraced, uh, but uh, the shame of it is not something that diminishes or what that one allows to diminish uh, or that even that it could diminish the love that is manifest there or the obedience to the father's will. And uh, so despising these things, you know, in a sense, we give them no power over them. Uh, it's because we respect them too much or respect what others uh, think of us when we undergo them. Um, you know, think about how Job's friends treated him when his life fell apart. You know, it's obviously there's something wrong with you, you know, because people are treating or because you're, you know, you've had all these disasters and all these things that happened to you. And sometimes we think the same thing about ourselves or others. Well, of course, you know, you're being treated this way because you, you must have, you know, be problematic here or have something wrong with your character uh, rather than it being living, trying to live in the world or being vulnerable and once love. And so experiencing uh, oneself being treated in a way that is often harsh or where one seeks to take advantage of the other. You know, where there's a holy innocence, often this struggle um, with this, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, you know, those with that kind of spirituality, this kind of holy innocence aren't, uh, you know, they lose a kind of suspicion in the way that they view the world. And so they often become open and vulnerable uh, to the betrayal, even of those who are closest to them. I think in some ways, you know, our Lord having to choose disciples and having, you know, to choose from these weak men and then also one who would betray him. I think there's something that is to be revealed to us there that we're often betrayed by those who are closest to us or from whom we might expect the greater love and protection doesn't make it easier, but it's often true. Uh, Eric writes, my translation says, it was the marvelous this marvelous grace that enabled the souls of the martyrs to rise superior to their torments. That, that is clarifying. I like that translation a lot. That's the Paulus Press one you're looking at, Eric? Yeah, okay. Vanessa writes, St. Teresa of Calcutta, always said we have to see Christ himself in the poor, broken, and suffering, realigns our focus to see the humanity in them. That's right. And, you know, and it has to even take, we even have to go a step further uh, in the sense that we are in no way condescending in our engagement of the poor, that, you know, we experience our own poverty in such a way that we engage them as our fellow human beings, that empathy uh, being so genuine and real that the, the sorrows and the burdens of others become our own. There is no such thing as an individual Christian. 
you know, we're part of a body. Number 78, the guarding of the thoughts is one thing and the custody of the mind is another. As far as the East is from the West, so much higher is the latter than the former and it is more laborious. So to guard one's thoughts is a good thing, uh, but to, to have custody over the mind that the habit there is to scrutinize things or uh, to have humbled oneself and purified oneself so much that there is a natural filter uh, for those things because we are in this constant state of, of custody. You know, we have this kind of self-ownership uh, over the mind uh, and so we're not attached to the things that could open us or make us vulnerable to sin and so he, this is why he says as far as the east is from the west guarding the thoughts is you know sort of the beginning but custody over the mind is really the goal and so you know we, we shouldn't be surprised when you know, that battle is a fierce one because he tells us it's more laborious, you know, to guard the thoughts. We're creating a habit of mind, a habit of virtue, but to re really get to the place where we experience that freedom, it means we've labored for many years and have relied very much upon the grace of God. So the heart has been reshaped and reformed. 79. It's one thing to pray for deliverance from bad thoughts and another to contradict them, another to despise and disregard them. Of the first way, he bears testimony who said, O oh God, be attentive unto helping me. The second, he who said, shall I give an answer to those who reproach me? And again, thou hast made us a gainsaying among our neighbors. Of the third, the witness is the psalmist, I was dumb and opened not my mouth, and I set a guard for my mouth when the sinner stood up against me. And again, the proud have transgressed exceedingly, but from thy division, divine vision have I not declined. He who stands on the middle step will often make use of the first of, the, of these means through being taken unawares. But he who stands on the first step is not in a position to ward off his enemies by the second means. And he who has reached the third step spurns the demons altogether. So the one who stands on that first step, who uh, prays for deliverance from certain thoughts, is if that's the extent, if that's as far as it goes in terms of the battle, that inevitably they're going to fall off that step, they're going to be pulled off of it. The second, while stronger, you know, contradicting uh, the thoughts that come to us, uh, speaking uh, back to them, fight, fighting them uh, more directly, uh, they are certainly in a better position, but they can be drawn back to the, that first step at times 
and so fall easily. It's really the, the third that he mentions uh, where the, the one despises and dis disregards them altogether. Uh, this is the habit of mind and the habit of virtue that one is to aim for, that uh, and places one beyond the reach of the demons. When one despises their thoughts and disregards every attempt they make uh, to see them no more than, you know, flies buzzing around to be swatted away, away then the 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 danger becomes non-existent. Again, the habit of mind, one has put on the mind of Christ at that point. Because while we're still arguing with them, often it betrays a kind of attachment. We're engaged in a kind of discussion. Our attention is directed toward them. And uh, whereas with the third, they, you know, individual pays no attention to them whatsoever. And again, this, this is a very important distinction for the spiritual battle. Because sometimes when thoughts and temptations come upon us, we find ourselves straining so hard and with our thoughts and, and fighting them and trying to push them away. And that's not a bad thing, of course, but uh, it's eventually we will weaken in that battle that uh, the freest position is really to see them as nothing, to see them for what they really are and to disregard them as having and holding within them no promise of life and love. Uh, is that the language of silence? Uh, I think especially in the way that someone like St. Isaac the Syrian would put it, absolutely yes, that silence is really holding up the desire to, to hear what God says to the heart. And so dis is willing to disregard, uh, you know, not only the thoughts and the temptations of the demons, but one's own thoughts, uh, benign or, or or even good to rest in this silence that that again allows god to speak something that is beyond understanding to the soul and so discernment as, as we can see begins to allow us to see that which has value and uh and what is worth struggling for as well as the various levels of struggling and whether or not we have really stretched ourselves to pursue the, the higher level of virtue. Eric writes, is ignoring the demons an option open to everyone or does this indicate that one is in a better spiritual position, so to speak, if one can do this? Uh, I think it reveals one who's labored long in the ascetic life and the development of this habit of virtue uh, to, to think that one early on in the spiritual life would have that capacity. They would be ex extraordinary in some, in some way, if that were true uh, to have been given this kind of purity of heart. Uh, so it typically is one who has engaged long in that battle fighting 
to get the custody of the mind who then eventually then has the ability to disregard those thoughts altogether. So finding freedom by, in a sense, letting go, how did Merikakis put that, letting go of our cruel freedom to receive the true freedom that Christ desires to give us. Okay. Well, that brings us to uh, 8.30 and uh, still a couple minutes, but I don't want to rush through one of the sayings. This is all very important on discernment. So we'll pick up there next week. Uh, so this is Meat Fair Week and this Sunday's Cheese Fair. So uh, prepare oneself. Lent's coming and uh, keep me in your prayers as well. So I'll be prepared for it. Okay, have a great week, everybody. And when we close ourselves with our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.